command. Uh, take six. How could I dance? She'll dance. She won't dance. I'll never dance. Where's the tempo? Where's the tempo? Oh, of course, no. Hello and welcome to Beatles Therapy. I'm your host, Brett Bessa. So, thank you for coming back. If you've listened to our episodes and are a subscriber, thank you for doing so. If this is your first episode, well, I do recommend you go back and listen to the others, but if you want to start here, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. You go on and you do you. Now, today is going to be our first song dissection slash review slash getting into the weeds of thing. That's not a very catchy title. Now, with our interview segments, I call them Tell Me Why. Like, you know, the the song. It took a long time to think of a name that would be fitting from the Beatles catalog of songs to this, and unfortunately none stood out as quite a match like Tell Me Why did. So, that's unfortunate, but I have decided on a name. It is... Drumroll, please, Ringo. You Like Me Too Much. That's a George song from With the Beatles, but I figured it would be fitting, given my obsession. Some would say I like the Beatles too much. I don't think there's any such thing, but it's as close a match as I could find. Now, like I said, we're going to get into that here shortly, but we have some administrative details to take care of. So far, this has been a one-sided conversation, me talking and you listening. Well, I have set up the means to rectify that. Beatles Therapy now has a social media presence. We have a variety of ways for you to contact us if you so choose to do so. If you're a Facebook person, we have a Facebook page that's called Beatles Therapy. Should be pretty easy to find. If you prefer Twitter, we are at Beatles Therapy, all one word. Also, along the same vein, we have a subreddit. That's r slash Beatles Therapy, also all one word. So please feel free to reach out to me however you want, and please do reach out, because I am starting to see that we are actually having people listen, that not not just people I tell to listen, like actual people in the world listening to me, which is so cool for me, and I want to say from the bottom of my heart to everyone out there in the world listening, thank you for doing so, and I really hope you continue to listen and like what you hear. Now, that having been out of the way, we're going to get into our first You Like Me Too Much, which is going to be I Saw Her Standing There. One, two, three, four. Well, she was just 17, you know what I mean, and the way she looked way beyond
One, two, three, four, indeed. Well, with that countdown, Paul McCartney and the rest of the Beatles kicked off a new era of not just rock and roll, but of all popular music. Now, if you think this is an exaggeration, consider this. In his book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, historian Ed Ward has Volume 1 cover the years 1920 to 1963. Please Please Me comes out in 1963. But the history of the song goes back to the previous year. The song went under the working title 17. Now that title would survive through to the recording sessions. Although it was credited to Lennon-McCartney, this was mostly a Paul song. He started writing it in September of 1962 as a conscious effort to appeal to the teenage girls in their audience. There is some conjecture as to whether the song is about any girl in particular or just more generally written about, you know, young teenage girls. Paul would later deny that it was written about anyone in particular, but, you know, a lot of people speculate it was written about his girlfriend at the time, Iris Caldwell, who, by the way, was 17 when he met her. It's food for thought. Now, the, an interesting thing about Iris is that she was the sister of Rory Storm. If you've never heard that name, I don't blame you, but he was the lead singer of a popular beat group known as Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. The drummer of Rory Storm and the Hurricanes went by the name of Ringo Starr. Now, according to Iris, Paul was going to give I Saw Her Standing There over to Rory Storm, but apparently Brian Epstein didn't allow this. Now, Lennon's big contribution to, to the song was to change the opening line from, well, she was just 17, never been a beauty queen, to, well, she was just 17, and you know what I mean. It's much more suggestive, much edgier, and much more rock and roll. But that's John for you. Now, Paul would later say that prior to I'm Down, I saw her standing there was the closest he got to writing, quote-unquote, a real corker, something like Long Tall Sally, end quote. He was going for that energy that Little Richard had, which is well he would return to time and time again. And, you know, Paul loved Little Richard because Long Tall Sally was the Beatles' signature closer in concert, and they would play that up until 1966. But back to I Saw Her Standing There. The song had become part of the Beatles' set by late 1962. They must have recognized the song's potential, because at the time it was such a young song, it was really only a few months old, but they put it at the front of their set. They opened with it at the Star Club in Hamburg in December. This can be heard on the Live at the Star Club bootleg. Yeah, let's listen to just a few seconds of that. It, there is an interesting part at the beginning. Apparently, Paul had stolen the bass line from Chuck Berry's I'm Talking About You. I can hear it, and normally I'm not one to have an ear for these kinds of things, so it must be pretty blatant. And plus, you know, Paul openly admits to it, and I'll believe him. 
Now, what you heard at the start of this segment was a rehearsal of I Saw Her Standing There at the Cavern Club. That's really cool because that's one of the few recordings we actually have of the Beatles at the venue. And you probably noticed, but it's really interesting about this particular version. It's not that it's just a little slower, but it has harmonica. John playing harmonica instead of rhythm guitar. Harmonica would be a feature on some Beatles songs, but... It was used pretty sparingly, and it was never used on any other take of I Saw Her Standing There, so it's really cool that we've got this recording still existing. And, of course, it never made it into any of the studio takes. Now, speaking of the studio, there were several takes of this song. None of them really differ radically from each other. They're pretty consistent, so meaning they probably got the song pretty much down by the time that they head into the studio. The song as we know it is a splice. The countdown comes from take nine, but the song itself is actually take one. Take nine would be eventually released on the single for Free as a Bird in 1995. Not bad to have a classic song done on your first try. Now, the countdown was recorded in the first place because they wanted to give the song a live feel. Now, this was done in lieu of George Martin's original idea to have the Beatles record live show at the Cavern Club. Now, how cool would that be? I know that the album we have now is a classic and you can't beat it, but man, that would be really cool to have that. I wish I could go to that alternate universe, grab that, and bring that back here. Now, on the first American release of I Saw Her Standing There, it was on VJ Records introducing the Beatles. Now, this album is a little weird because most of the U.S. albums were distributed by Capitol Records, but this really small-time label named VJ actually got the rights to the Beatles before they you know, really blew up. And so in America, they released an album with the same tracklist, but just renamed it Introducing the Beatles. Now, regardless, they were supposed to have cut out the countdown, but you can still hear the four, and then the song continues. So they didn't do a very good job of it. Now, Take Two was made available on iTunes' The Beatles Bootleg Recordings 1963 set. You can go buy it. It's not that different. It features a few slip-ups from John when he's trying to do his backing vocals and a slightly different guitar solo from George, but really, it's pretty much the same song that we all know and love. Now, Take 10 features an astounding performance by Ringo on drums. Like, seriously, it's a shame that they couldn't use this as the final take. The rest of the band was a little sloppy on that particular take, which is why they probably never used it. But man, I wish they had the technology to just grab that drum track out of it and put it on the rest of the song, because man, he is just on point on the drum. Seriously, it sounds like he's like, it's like a machine gun or something. Seriously, it's really cool. If you can find it, go try and listen to it. Now, remember how we talked about the working title 17 earlier? George Martin was still referring to the song as that through at least take 11. So, meaning they must have changed the title after the song was recorded, which is interesting. Now, here's the bit where I give my opinion of the song. I mean, it's phenomenal. It's great. It's a huge burst of energy to let the Beatles on the scene. It is punch in the face and i mean that in the best possible way because my god does this song rock it is a rock and roll song seriously play this song it is a classic <laughs> now 
I remember I used to be a counselor at a day camp in New York, and one time I was in charge of putting the music on over the, the loudspeakers, and I chose this song for one of my picks, because who doesn't love this song? And yeah, sure enough, these, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old kids got up, all of them, and started dancing to this song because it kicks ass, because it's a great song and everyone loves it. It is just such an energetic, fun, go-up-and-dance kind of song. Now, after Please Please Me comes out, the song features pretty heavily on their set lists. The Beatles end up recording the song 11 times for the BBC. And I mean, come on, there was a reason for that. It's great. It was one of the five songs that they chose to play for their first appearance on Ed Sullivan, which is a big deal because they knew how big a deal that appearance was and how that would make or break them. And they chose that song to be one of the five pretty significant if you ask me and they did give a good performance on that particular night for those of you who have seen either the anthology documentary or the new eight days a week documentary you've seen footage of them playing this live in washington dc and wow there is a palpable energy in that performance i don't know what was in the air that night but man they do a hell of a job of playing this song especially Ringo. Now, there must have been some uppers or something involved, but man, if you can find like footage of it, he is just pounding away at the drums like Animal from the Muppets or something because it is just great. Seriously, go watch that and tell me the Beatles can't rock. It is unbelievable. He's just beating the crap out of those drums. No, seriously, find it on YouTube and watch it. I dare anyone to tell me after seeing that performance that Ringo wasn't a good drummer. He was a fantastic drummer, and that proves it. Another especially notable live performance comes post-Beatles. John Lennon famously made an appearance with Elton John in 1974 live at Madison Square Garden, and he played this song there. And this song, this particular version of this song, is a treasure. It's great to listen to. Now, interestingly, before playing it, John Lennon refers to Paul as an estranged fiancé. A lot of people have commented that the two treated each other after the break of the band more like jilted lovers, really, than former friends. But I guess one supposes that the line between the two gets pretty blurry when you're that close. Regardless, this was the last major performance by Lennon, and that's really sad, but what a way to go out. Now, given that this song was never the lead on a single, I don't think it ever got quite as big as it had the potential to be. But by no means is it obscure. British fans know it pretty well because, you know, it was the first track on the first album. It got demoted to the second track on Meet the Beatles, which personally, I think it would have worked better if they switched it with I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was the first track on Meet the Beatles. But it does have a certain logic to it because I saw her standing there with the B-side to the A-side on the I Want to Hold Your Hand single. But given its fairly wide exposure, it's still a Beatles song that most people will recognize. It would go on to be ranked as number 139 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. Now, seriously, that's pretty awesome. It was released as a recorded cover once by an artist named Tiffany in the year... Well, you know what? I'm just going to play a few seconds, and how about you tell me what year it came out?
yeah. My mom always taught me, if you don't have anything nice to say, just don't say anything at all. So here's what I have to say about Tiffany's version of I saw her standing there. But let's not let Tiffany have the last word on this song. Let's let John have it. Now, I'm going to close out with that previously mentioned version of I Saw Her Standing There that John Lennon did with Elton John. It's pretty cool. So thank you so much to everyone for listening. If you just want to reach out, now you have the means to do so. So please do. I really want to hear from you guys. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Uh, I'd like to thank Elton and the boys for having me on tonight. We're trying to think of a number to finish off with so that I could get out of here and be sick. <laughs> and we thought we'd do another, a number of an older, strange fiancé of mine called Paul. This is one I never sang. It's an old Beatle number, and we just about know it. Here we are. Thank you.